Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Cases climb from Singapore to Russia to the U.K., COVID numbers surge. Evergrande, ever closer, a multi-billion dollar deal collapses as debt deadlines loom. And Pinterest, interest. PayPal said to be planning a multi-billion dollar bid. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us on this autumn in New York edition of the program. A nip in the air already on Wall Street, too, and a brisk market mood. B stands for Bitcoin at all-time highs and up more than 120% year-to-date. R for record stocks, the Dow hitting all-time highs yesterday and the S&P approaching it. I for IPO fever, a full bounty of new listings set to launch on Wall Street today, including blast from the past, we work. It looks a bit different today. S is for scintillating profits. Tesla reporting a third straight record quarter. And K for king-size deals. As I mentioned, PayPal may have interest in Pinterest in a potential $40 billion plus deal. But of course, with Brisk, comes risk. U.S. futures a touch lower after yesterday's record Dow rise. More softness in the technology sector too and some blustery weather across Asia and European stock markets too. Bonds to blame? Well, 10-year U.S. government yields are sitting at five-month highs. European yields windswept too amid fresh pricing pressures. Yes, inflation is still aflame. Consumer products giant Unilever hiking prices, they say, by some 4%. They see no quick fix on prices either. And supply chain challenges compounding trade tensions. Later on in the show, we'll discuss all of these issues with U.S. Trade Representative Ambassador Catherine Tai. But for now, old story, new concerns. Let's talk COVID and a COVID comeback in the UK. Health experts are warning that a winter crisis may be on the way. Britain registered almost 50,000 new cases on Monday. That's more than France, Germany, Italy and Spain combined. Fred Pleitgen joins us now. Fred, the numbers sound alarming, but what does the data tell us? Because if you test more, you're going to find more. And I think this is at least a critical part of this story. It certainly is part of the story, but I do think that both the uh, the health secretary and also uh, the NHS and also the British Medical Association, all of them are very alarmed by these numbers. And and the testing here in the United Kingdom may be a little higher than in some European countries, but if you look, for instance, at Germany, they certainly are testing a lot as well. And I think one of the, the numbers that really has a lot of people alarmed is the fact that it wasn't just those, as you mentioned, almost 50,000 cases on Monday, but that the UK has been above 40,000 cases per day for the past seven days running. And yesterday when we had the health secretary, Sajid Jawid, at his press conference, he said he fears 
that the numbers could go up to 100,000 cases per day as we get closer to the winter, uh, as, as the winter itself then progresses. So certainly those are alarming signs. Now, the government says, the health secretary says um, that right now, as of this point, the UK is not going to initiate what they call that plan B. That obviously would include, for instance, public mask mandates, social distancing mandates, uh, things of that nature. That at this point in time is not going to be uh, put into place, but they do say that the government is uh, remaining vigilant. Now, you have a lot of criticism of that, like, for instance, from the British Medical Association, also from the heads of the NHS, the heads of the NHS, uh, who are saying that they believe that this plan B needs to be initiated now. They say there is already a lot of strain on medical facilities. There is already a lot of strain on the National Health Service, and they fear that that could only get worse. And that that term that you were just using is one that they've been using as well. They are, are saying that they fear that there could be a winter of crisis if the government doesn't act quickly and doesn't act strongly as well, Julia. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things to consider here. And you made the point as well about not only do you have to look at cases, but you have to look Mm. at those that are being hospitalized as a result. And of course, how the death rates adjusting as well. And then if you're talking about government action, it's the relative prevalence of mask wearing or not in the UK versus some of the liberalization of restrictions that we've seen. The other thing that comes to mind as well is the timing of vaccines and the belief. And I've looked at a couple of studies actually this morning that suggest that those that began vaccinating more early perhaps are seeing some of that protection warning as we get five, six, seven, eight months out. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that that could be one of the factors as well. And of course, one of the things that really all of Europe marveled at, uh, marveled at and, and a lot of the world marveled at was uh, the success of the UK vaccination campaign, especially in the early stages. You know, the first regulator to actually allow the, the uh, BioNTech-Pfizer vaccine uh, to be able to use that in emergency use, but then also a very fast vaccination campaign to begin with. Uh, that vaccination campaign has been somewhat stuttering. But if you look at what the government is saying, they are saying that they believe that vaccinations for them are the way out of it, not necessarily mandating uh, wearing masks and, and social distancing, but getting vaccinations going faster. Now, of course, there is still a proportion of people in this country who have not been vaccinated. And yesterday, the UK health secretary said he believes those people should get vaccinated as fast as possible. He wants to entice them to do that. But then there's the point that you made, which is absolutely key here in this country, and that is booster shots. And they certainly Mm. want to make booster shots available to the people who are eligible as fast as possible. And then finally, and this is also, of course, very important, as we've seen some of the effects that COVID is also having on children as well, is getting those single jabs uh, to kids as young as 12. They also want to be able to do that as fast as possible. So really, if you look at the government, They want to vaccinate more, vaccinate as fast as possible. They said in the end, all of this is a race between the virus and the vaccine. They believe they're still ahead, but they say that the gap is narrowing. Again, though, the medical association here in this country does believe that uh, that stronger measures like, for instance, mask mandates is something that should happen, Julia. Yeah, I've got a sensation of deja vu here with the government saying it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay, and we've got a handle on this. And then uh, questions get asked, severe ones later. We'll see. Fred Plaikin, thank you for that update there. Asia, too, seeing a resurgence of COVID-19 cases. China reported 21 new cases on Wednesday. Yes, you heard me right. But those figures do not include asymptomatic patients. Meanwhile, Singapore is extending its coronavirus curbs. Wednesday brought the country's highest COVID death toll for a single day. It's just four months since Singapore reversed its zero COVID policy in favour of a new plan to try and live with the virus, as Manisha Tank reports. 
It's a sad fact that living with COVID-19, as is the policy here in Singapore, has led to an increased number of fatalities as a result of the disease. Many of those who are developing serious complications are still unvaccinated or have underlying health conditions. A vast majority of the cases that are circling locally are in fact recuperating at home and are only developing a mild form of the disease. And that is showing that vaccinations are working. 84% of the population here are vaccinated and now more are being encouraged to get boosters as well. The government has extended restrictions on movements around Singapore for another month to help curb the spread of the disease further. But it's also acknowledged that most cases are local. They are not imported, and that's one of the reasons why it's now added eight countries to its vaccinated travel lane list, including the United States. Although, interestingly, this week, the United States has issued a travel advisory about Singapore related to COVID-19, defining it as high risk in terms of a destination. All of that said, there does seem to be light at the end of the tunnel with more people returning to Singapore's shores that could bring in some really important business for an economy that has been battered over the last two years due to the severe restrictions to control the spread of this disease. But none of that takes away from the sadness that many, not just here in Singapore, but around the world feel for those who are being lost. Manisha Tank for CNN in Singapore. Hmm. OK, let's move on. Evergrande, ever challenged. Shares in the Chinese real estate giant down over 12 percent after a deal to sell part of its property management unit collapsed. Evergrande faces another interest payment deadline on Saturday. Selena Wang joins me now. Selena, great to have you with us. I mean, this was vitally needed cash. I think they were hoping to raise as much as $2.6 billion. Do we know if this was a buyer issue or a seller issue or both? What more can you tell us? Things have certainly gone from bad to worse for Evergrande. And in various filings, both parties were blaming each other for why this deal fell apart. But in short, what is clear is that they were unable to agree to the terms of the deal. And investors were expecting and waiting while Evergrande shares were halted that Hobson Development, another Chinese real estate firm, was going to buy a controlling stake in Evergrande's property services unit for about $2.6 billion. And now, as you say, without this much-needed cash injection, the question is, where does Evergrande go from here and how does it sort through this mountain of $300 billion in liabilities? Now, when I talk to analysts, they say that they ultimately think that the government is going to bail out Evergrande in a way that makes it look like the property, the private sector did it, even though the government was pulling the strings behind the scenes. And that's because, Julia, the stakes here are so hard to overstate here. Evergrande's troubles are already fueling fears of contagion throughout China's property market. You have several other property developers also indicating that they're struggling to pay off their debts as well. And property in China has fueled, has supercharged the country's rapid economic growth over the past several decades, growing to account for as much as 30% of China's GDP. And about three quarters of China's household wealth is tied up in property. So the stakes here are incredibly high, Julia. Yeah, I mean, those that push back and say, look, it's not going to be a systemic problem point out that obviously the banking systems between the differences between the systems, say, in the United States versus China is vast because China's central bank can step in and force the banks to lend. But your points about the scale and the size and the importance of this sector is huge. Talk to me about this payment that's due 
on or at the weekend on Saturday, we believe it, it's already been extended by 30 days. And I also believe it's an international bond payment. And they they have drawn a distinction between domestic bond repayments and international bond repayments. And whether or not they pay this could be very important. Exactly. From Evergrande's action so far, it appears to be that its priorities are Mm. to work and pay off these domestic lenders first if they're able to pay them off at all. As you mentioned, this coming Saturday, there is this dollar bond deadline that has already been extended. This is the deadline for this grace period. And if they don't make that payment, it could tip the company into a formal default. That means that on Monday, this could trigger shockwaves throughout the global financial system. Some analysts say that this could trigger a cross default on other debt instruments that could then allow some other of Evergrande's creditors to demand their money back. And speaking of Beijing's priorities here, uh, we talked about Evergrande trying to pay back these domestic lenders first. And Beijing's priority really is to make sure that people in China who have bought these unfinished homes, that they are protected, as well as local construction workers, suppliers, and these small investors. They're also concerned here about social stability. But Beijing is really in a tricky position in terms of how they unwind all of this. Most analysts agree that this isn't China's Lehman moment, that they are going to prevent a complete collapse of this company. But the question is how they do that while still sending a strong signal to the rest of these property developers that they still want those companies to rein in their massive amounts of debt sending the signal about moral hazard. And Julie, importantly here also is that we are seeing an end to this high economic growth model in China that was fueled by big amounts of debt, that was fueled by the property sector. Beijing is trying to change that and pull it back. Yeah. And what replaces it is the is the big question here, um, Selena. And also accidents happen. <laughs> Selena Wang there. Great context. Thank you so much for that. Okay, let's move on. PayPal putting a pin in Pinterest. The fintech giant reportedly looking at a purchase value in Pinterest at around $40 billion. It would be the biggest acquisition of a social media company ever. Paul LaMonica joins me with what we know. Paul, it would be the biggest tech deal of the year if it goes through and would move PayPal further towards its ambitions of being some kind of super app, a one-stop shop for payments and goods. What do we think? Yeah, it's fascinating, Julia. Right now, we do not have any confirmation as of yet from either party, PayPal and Pinterest, not commenting to CNN about the speculation that this deal might be in the works. But to your point, Julia, if PayPal were to buy Pinterest, it would make the company that super app, the content and commerce that it would be somewhat akin to what we've seen in China and other Asian companies as well. You think of something like Alipay, you think of uh, you know, uh, WeChat. These are companies that really mix the social and the spending together. So if you had PayPal merging with Pinterest, then all of a sudden you think of all of those goods that Pinterest users are posting about and bookmarking you then have through PayPal and Venmo an easy way to potentially purchase some of these items that uh, people are posting on their uh, Pinterest pages. Yeah, and the scale up potential here for PayPal is huge. I mean, Pinterest, 380 million monthly active users who use the app 37 times a month, compared with 80 million users for PayPal who actively use it eight to nine times a month. That's um, from Bloomberg numbers. Um, The problem is... 
when you are a payments company and you buy a social media platform like a Pinterest, you inherit all the issues that we've long been talking about for a social media platform. Content moderation is a great example. Um, An advertiser business model, you sort of have to be careful what you wish for when you scale up and in this direction. It would be potentially problematic, Julia, for PayPal if they were to do this acquisition. I don't think necessarily that PayPal wants to be a content moderator per se. They see the synergies of having Venmo users buying things on Pinterest. Where they have to draw the line is Pinterest has, to its credit, not been as problematic as some of the more toxic issues we're seeing on social media. I don't think anyone would say that Pinterest is as negative a place to be on uh, social media as, say, Twitter or Facebook or other uh, sites right now. But Pinterest does have some problems. There has been a gender discrimination lawsuit that has been in the news. There's also been concerns about some of the content on Pinterest regarding weight loss and whether or not people were promoting unhealthy lifestyles and uh, you know body shaming. So that's obviously an issue as well that Pinterest is not immune to. But make no mistake, I don't think anyone in their right mind thinks that Pinterest has as many problems as, say, Facebook and Instagram or Twitter. Yeah, but you know, that's interesting that you mentioned that because I have seen comparisons made to potentially an Instagram type vehicle where you can actually make purchases direct and it's very easy to do that. So it's sort of, if they go ahead with this, has the potential for that. And of course, as we've described, it may not have the issues or comparatively the same level of issues now, but doesn't mean they can't in the future. Paula Monica, thank you for that. So to come here on First Move, Relationship Reset. I speak to the U.S. Trade Representative as she rebuilds the transatlantic partnership with a tour of Europe. And Santa may not be coming to town. Toys caught up in the shipping crisis could make anything but a silent night this holiday season. Cue the complaints. Stay with us. It's all coming up. Welcome back to First Move on Wall Street. A thinner Thursday on tap after the first record high for the Dow in two months. The tech sector set to fall for a second straight day, as you see before you. IBM helping pressure the blue chips. The tech giant set to fall some 5% after missing on its top line. Weakness in its cloud business. Uh, Clients pulling back on spending too. Will that be an industry-wide concern or specific to IBM? We shall see. From, From big blue to Bitcoin, the crypto king pulling back from record highs after breaking through the $66,000 barrel yesterday. Members of Team Bitcoin are striking while the iron is hot too, including Stronghold Digital Mining, which rose 52% on its first day of trade yesterday. It's a US firm that mines Bitcoin from waste coal. Waste coal? Does that make it clean? Not sure about that. It's another banner day for US listings today too. In addition, we WeWorks $9 billion SPAC launch. We have IPOs for coconut water firm Vita Coca, online wine club Wink, and many others. That's a great name, Wink. 
Tantalizing results, meanwhile, from electric car maker Tesla. Net income rose $1.6 billion for the third quarter. For comparison, that was $330 million a year ago. Its automotive revenue rose to $12 billion. And despite chip shortages and supply chain challenges, they confirmed prior guidance of an average of 50% annual growth in vehicle deliveries over the coming years. Joining us now to discuss, Dan Ives, Managing Director of Equity Research at Wedbush Securities. Dan Great to have you with us, as always. I mean, we can pour over the individual numbers, but the first thing that caught my eye was the margins. Their profitability is beefing up. Well, that's the key. I mean, their EBITDA, their adjusted EBITDA on a run rate, it's close to what GM is on 10% of the scale. I think this just shows a much more profitable Tesla going forward. It's the next leg of this story that's starting to take hold. And we're starting to see, despite chip shortage, I mean, they're continuing to own the EV market going into the next few years. And it was funny, as I was looking through these numbers, I was thinking to myself, how would they have looked without the supply chain bottlenecks and, and some of the chip shortages? And if you look at the wait time for the Model Y, which was what fueled uh, much of the deliveries that we saw in the quarter, that's now pushing into next spring. So one question was, people are clearly happy to wait for these things, but it also throws the spotlight on their manufacturing capacity in Shanghai, in Berlin, in Austin, that's going to come online, because this is going to be critical to the story, surely, going forward. Well, that's the game changer. With Austin and Berlin coming on board, you could have now capacity into the million. Because right now, Tesla, they don't have a demand problem. They have a supply problem. Demand's outstripping supply by about thirty to 40,000 vehicles because you're starting to see this next stage of the green tidal wave take over. And I think right now, you go into next year with the margin store, and that's the one-two punch why we believe bull case is now 1500 for the stock. Oh, so you've raised your price target. I mean, you know, you've been saying to us for a long time, look, in 2022, 40% of the demand is coming from China. So that's also another critical piece of the jigsaw puzzle. And when I, I look at what we're seeing here in terms of demand, um, far less worries than we had three, six months ago there too. Well, China, as you know so well, go back to earlier this year, headwinds yeah. and regulatory PR issues. Now those are tailwinds because what we're seeing in China... 40% deliveries for next year, but also now with Europe and the U.S. starting to catch up, you know, at least in the EV landscape, it's Tesla's world. Everyone else is paying rent. I want to move on and talk Facebook rebrand efforts. Dan, what do you make of this in light of, of recent challenges? Does it make any difference to the share price for investors? It, it really does. I mean, obviously, mm. it's similar to the holding structure of Alphabet, Google, for Facebook, I think this is something they paid a lot of people, a lot of money in a room, and that was the decision. But, but it doesn't change the model. It doesn't change how investors view it and really that bull bear debate. It all comes down to monetization and advertising. And, and at least for right now, investors are viewing that as a contained risk. But for Facebook, they continue to do this sort of PR Rubik's Cube. That's part of the story is, is Zuckerberg and company trying to move on. Yeah, a Rubik's Cube that doesn't feel like there is ever a solution that you can get to. Um, and it doesn't matter, which I think is the, the important point there. Um, AirPods, Apple, I never expected this to be such a huge chunk of their revenues, but this has become and can become a huge part of the business. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be 6%, 7% of revenues into next year. You look at AirPods 3, 
by chip shortage that obviously got released this week, we think that could be 100 million units into next year. And it just speaks to our thesis. Many say the innovation of Cupertino is in the rearview mirror. But that's how Apple, in our opinion, is a $3 trillion mark cap into next year. An unparalleled golden install base. And look at the innovation on the chips. They're beating Intel at their own game on M1. Share price target there? 185, bull case 225. I think the, the bark's worse than a buy in terms of chip shortage for Apple. It's a demand right now. iPhone 13 super cycle continues to play out. 30 seconds on Microsoft. I mean, right now, that continue, even though it's, it continues to reach record highs, I think there's yeah, still flying. a lot more gasoline and tank. 375 price target. This continues to be the cloud play with that renaissance of growth that Nadella is leading in Microsoft. Also gain more and more traction versus AWS. Expect strength next week when they report. Yeah, I think, I think that answers my question on the uh, IBM idiosyncratic or systemic issue in uh, cloud demand. Hmm. Dan Ives, Managing Director of Equity Research at Wedbush Securities. Great to chat to you. As always, the market opens next. Welcome back to First Move and the members of WeWork there listing today and clapping vigorously. No signer, founder, of course, Adam Newman, a very different WeWork going public than we've discussed in the past. We'll see how it trades today. In the meantime, U.S. stocks are up and running this Thursday, a pullback from record highs for the Dow. The S&P on track, two for its first drop in seven sessions. Emerging markets in the news. Meanwhile, the Turkish lira tumbling to an all-time low against the U.S. dollar after its central bank cut rates by a full 200 basis points, that's 2%, to 16%, a much deeper cut than expected. The central bank pressured by President Erdogan to ease borrowing costs despite soaring inflation that the central bank insisted today is, you guessed it, transitory. Put some money in that cookie jar. In the meantime, the U.S. Trade Representative says she's making good progress in her mission to forge a better partnership with the EU. Ambassador Catherine Tai's shuttle diplomacy is aimed at repairing and rebuilding ties. And that includes the relationship with France, which was furious when it was elbowed out of a submarine deal with Australia. Speaking to me exclusively from Brussels a short time ago, she told me her aim is to reconnect. Let me just say that um, uh, the transatlantic relationship uh, writ large, uh, which certainly includes the U.S.-French relationship, um, is um, at the forefront of our priorities in uh, the Biden administration, including in trade policy, in terms of uh, rebuilding the relationship, but not just to where it was uh, a couple years ago, uh, but really um, uh, uh, building the relationship and injecting it with momentum, forward movement for uh, collaboration in um, confronting and addressing the challenges that we share. In fact, that's why I'm here in Brussels on this trip, which is uh, primarily to connect with stakeholders here in Europe. Um, Part of what I'm doing at home is uh, getting myself out of Washington, connecting with Americans where they live, where they work, in their communities, uh, and understanding what they need from trade policy at this point um, in uh, our economic uh, uh, moment. And uh, it's also critically important for me to connect with uh, workers, uh, environmental organizations, stakeholders here in Europe, Uh, so that we can be a better partner with Europe and really understand all the parameters for uh, collaboration and opportunities that we have right now. 
And I, I think the Europeans certainly uh, benefit and welcome your presence. And as you said, you've been there many times, even just in the last few weeks. Have things improved with France? Just to tackle that directly. I think so. What what I want to say is this, um, uh, you know, uh, governments uh, like our economies, um, we're comprised of people um, and uh, uh, none of us is perfect uh, as people, um, but we're also not perfect in our relationships. The key, the test of any strong relationship is not whether or not you can avoid having um, uh, issues crop up. It's what you do when those issues crop up. And I think that the intensification of communication, consultation, uh, collaboration that you see, not just from me, but across the Biden administration, is really indicative of the strength of the relationship and the potential uh, for um, uh, how, how strong we can build it. Makes perfect sense to me, the heart of diplomacy. One of the ways I think that they would immediately follow uh, to your response there would be a bone of contention as far as metal tariffs are concerned on imports of EU metals into the United States. How close are we to seeing the United States remove those metal tariffs? Well, let me put this in context as well. This is something that we've been working on uh, since uh, since June and the uh, US-EU summit when the president came to Brussels. Uh, but certainly an area where our um, uh, interactions and engagement have intensified uh, over uh, the last uh, uh, couple months and certainly these last couple weeks. And what I would say is that um, I feel uh, a very um, uh, focused energy uh, from both sides to uh, take the trade measures that are between us right now and to really focus on the big picture. How do we take down the temperature between the U.S. and EU economies where we are ideally we are ideally going to be aligned in terms of the challenges that we share in facing a global overcapacity that's distorting the market, not just for the workers and businesses in the U.S., but also here in the EU? How do we take down the temperature and how do we start to build the trust between us and build the relationship and collaboration again so that we can be working together, we can be connecting our economies as a more powerful force in pushing back on a global overcapacity that's distorting the market for all of us. That sounds to me like it's not happening anytime soon. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry if, you, <laughs> if you're taking that from it. No, no, um, I just want to focus us on what the goals are and how important, how important it is for us uh, to reach these goals. Um, so what I would say is we're working very hard um, and uh, I think that we are making very good progress. That sounds more positive. Um, another, and it's been described as a pivot point actually in the relationship between the EU and the United States when we spoke to the French finance minister this week and, and he said it's on China. And there's a difference of opinions and approach that the perception in Europe is that America wants to confront and challenge China, whereas Europe wants to engage. Do you agree that China effectively wins if the US and the EU are at odds with this relationship and how to tackle the issues with China? Well, let me take a step back. I think that um, a lot of this talk has come from comments that uh, Minister Le Maire made. And um, I wanted to give the minister um, the fair shake that he deserves. And I went back and looked at his comments. And I don't think that they're um, as pointed or as sharp as uh, the reporting seems to make it. Um, and let me say, I think that we are we are very much aligned uh, from the U.S. and EU perspectives. And also from my own conversations with uh, the minister, uh, the U.S. and French perspectives in terms of um, uh, the fact that we share 
really uh, considerable competitive challenges uh, right now, uh, but also um, in terms of the values that we share uh, as um, societies, as economies, in terms of our political philosophies. So uh, what I would say is that um, we have so much potential here for um, uh, aligning uh, US-EU. And in terms of our approaches to China, actually in the conversations that I've been having, and I assure you, I have been having a lot of these conversations, um, I, don't, I don't feel that there are gaps. I think that there is just a lot of potential for how we coordinate our approaches. Yeah, communication is key. And actually, when he spoke to us, he did say that the resolution of the issues over Boeing and Airbus was one area where perhaps it was allowing China to have a greater head start than they perhaps needed or should have had. And the resolution of that actually solved one of those issues. So um, I would agree with you, uh, certainly on some of that points. There are ways where the two areas can, uh, can agree and improve things. Um, China. You've described it as a complex relationship. You've also suggested that there is some slippage on the phase one deal that the United States and China struck in particular. Um, I'm sure that's been addressed with the Chinese. Was there any remedial action specifically discussed? So um, in the speech that I gave that you've referenced, um, mm -hmm. I did uh, indicate that um, um, I intended to connect with my uh, counterpart in Beijing. Um, and we have had a phone call. In fact, it was, um, I think I gave my speech at the beginning of the week and um, I ended that week. Uh, it, was a, it was an appropriate bookend to that week uh, with a phone call um, with the vice premier. Um, and uh, we've started the conversation. So, um, uh, you know, I think um, appropriate to the complexity in the relationship and also um, the, um, the conversation that we need to have around um, uh, China's uh, performance under the phase one agreement, uh, also longstanding and continuing U.S. concerns with respect to the impacts of Chinese industrial policy on uh, the American economy and our workers. Um, this is a conversation that one doesn't solve in uh, one meeting or one phone call. We will continue this engagement from the perspective of needing to defend our economic interests and requiring, as you put it, uh, really um, uh, good communication between the two largest economies in the world to make sure that we are really clear with each other so that we can find a way to compete intensively, but also to coexist um, without uh, uh, tearing down uh, the structures of the world economy around us. Do you reserve the right to use more tariffs? If they don't comply, I reserve I reserve the right to use uh, any of our available tools mm -hmm. and I reserve the opportunity to uh, work on developing new tools for trade enforcement, for defending our economic interests, including in collaboration with our uh, close allies and partners in order to be able to defend our interests. I think that we have to be very clear eyed about the lessons we have learned from the past 20 to 30 years. Uh, both in terms of uh, areas where um, the system has not operated uh, in the way that we wanted it to, but also in areas where we did not um, uh, equip ourselves with the kinds of tools that we need to meet the challenges of the 21st century. You know, somewhere where, and we've talked about it, values align between the EU and the United States in particular is on forced labour, particularly forced labour in the Xinjiang province. Um, 
When will the G7, perhaps even more broadly other members of the G20, even the World Trade Organization, be prepared to act on this? Because when the discussion, it seems, takes place with China, the message is, um, for want of a better word, butt out and sort your own problems out first. When will nations like the G7 be ready to tackle this directly? Well, uh, let me just say that uh, forced labor is a problem wherever you find it. And obviously, there's been a lot of focus um, on um, China and in particular practices in the Xinjiang area. Um, but uh, the the concerns around forced labor have been longstanding and um, are, are not just in one part of the world. So let me say that. Uh, the second part is that... Um, uh, we have been talking about forced labor in all of our forums, including the WTO. And I am encouraged by the fact that even at the WTO, where we have such a diversified and large membership, not a single trade minister that I've met has told me that forced labor is a practice that they endorse or that we should allow for in the global economy. To your specific question with respect to the G7 members, um, I think it was earlier in this year that uh, G7 trade ministers came out with a joint statement um, aligning ourselves, unifying ourselves uh, against the practice of forced labor. And um, uh, many of us have measures either that we have in place. Uh, we in the U.S. have a complete import ban on goods that are produced in whole or in part by forced labor. Um, and I know that uh, here in the EU, uh, there's a lot of activity and energy around developing uh, due diligence mechanisms uh, to ensure that supply chains are clear of um, uh, practices like forced labor. So um, uh, I will be meeting uh, with my counterparts uh, from the G7, um, I think actually later tonight and tomorrow. Mm. And uh, <laughs> I'm sure that this will... In fact, I know because I've seen the agenda. This will be on our agenda and um, we will be continuing the conversation. And and Ambassador, very, thank you. And, and Ambassador, very quickly, because I know I have to let you go to um, on your point about supply chains. And it's, again, pivotal to this relationship and to more broadly what we're seeing uh, and ties directly to the uh, economic performance of the United States and beyond semiconductors. $52 billion has been announced by the administration so far. And yet I look around the world and the Chinese in particular, the, the Taiwanese, they're spending multiple times this, never mind the private sector investment. Does more need to come from the government in the United States to shore up independence in this regard? Let me just say this. We started by talking about steel and aluminum. Um, I like to talk about solar as well because it's yes. so um, uh, relevant to a lot of the challenges that we're facing today. Semiconductors, your example is also excellent. Uh, in sector after sector, uh, we in the United States, but also uh, here in Europe, uh, we need to be um, acting uh, smarter. We need to be investing more in ourselves. We need to be collaborating with each other more so that we don't need to, um, uh, if, if, we're, if we're creating a wheel, we don't need to be reinventing it each for ourselves. Hmm. Um, we should be capitalizing on uh, synergies between our economies and others. And yes, absolutely, we need to be doing so much more in terms of ensuring uh, that we are prepared for the intense competition that we are in and that will only get more intense over these next years. Yes, no reinventing the wheel where a good wheel exists. I think that's great advice. Um, Ambassador, fantastic to chat to you. Thank you so much. And um, I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you very much. Ambassador Catherine Tai there. Now coming up, winter is coming. Will the Russian bear sleep or stir? A key question for a Europe running low on energy. Richard Quest is up next, reporting from Russia.
Welcome back to First Move. The seemingly relentless energy rally is taking a bit of a pause so far this Thursday. Oil and natural gas prices are all lower after huge run-ups this year, but still lots of concern over whether Europe can stay warm this winter as supplies run low. Russia increasingly holds the key. It's an energy-rich country dealing with many pressing domestic challenges too, as Richard Quest reports. Winter is just about here. And as the mercury drops, so Russia has a decision to make. The cold weather means Europe is in need of natural gas. And that's something with which Moscow may be able to help. The question is whether Russia can and will do the job. Russia, the main supplier of gas into Europe, they have struggled to meet the demand in Europe as well. If you have a very cold winter, you could see this power crisis accelerate and real pressure on consumers. The IEA, the International Energy Agency, wants Russia to send more gas and prove themselves to be a reliable supplier. President Vladimir Putin says that it's Europe who needs to get their house in order. We can see where unbalanced decisions, unbalanced actions and abrupt movements can bring us. Today, as I said before, we can clearly see it on European energy markets. As the nights get longer and the temperatures drop, so energy prices go higher. And the need for a deal becomes pressing. Approval for the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which would send Russian gas straight to the EU, is likely to become a bargaining chip. The French finance minister says Europe has allowed itself to get into a vulnerable position. We are too much dependent on Russia. We are too much dependent on foreign countries as far as energy is concerned. Despite his leverage over Europe, this will not be an easy winter either for Mr Putin or for Russia. New restrictions have come in this week. Daily Covid cases are at record levels. Around a thousand people are dying per day. So Moscow's introduced a new four-month lockdown for any over 60s unvaccinated. And yet, despite being the first to approve a vaccine, Russia's vaccination rate lags behind other countries. Now President Putin's urging his countrymen to step things up. We need to increase its pace. I ask you to take an active part in this activity. For Vladimir Putin in Russia, this winter is all about decisions, about whether to help keep the lights on in Europe and COVID under control at home. Coming up after the break, we've got a toy story for you, an epic tale of supply shortages and the fight to save Christmas. Welcome back to First Move. Will we see less toys and louder tantrums this Christmas? The global supply shortage has retailers sounding the alarm two months out from the big day. As Claire Sebastian reports. Staff at this New York City toy store had no idea they'd be getting this delivery of books and toys today or that all of the orders would be incomplete. We're placing orders every day, constantly, as, as many as we can think of. One of my bigger companies, I ordered a huge order in February, 
and it just shipped a couple weeks ago. So it's so hard to determine when and if things are going to come. The enticing displays here mask an unprecedented inventory problem. Many items running out. I have three of these. There's no more downstairs. I have three of these. There's no more downstairs. Others in oversupply. I've got about um, 20 times that in my basement. And behind the scenes. This is what my very messy office looks like with shipping out to be done and shipping into process. Christina Clark says she was warned by suppliers to stockpile ahead of the holidays. 85% of all toys sold in the U.S. are imported, according to the Toy Association. And right now, the ships that carry them mostly from Asia are stuck in a giant maritime traffic jam, the result of surging demand as economies recover and ongoing COVID-related disruptions. Well, it's not just a shipping crisis affecting the toy supply chain. There's also port congestion piling on and a shortage of truck drivers to get them to their destination. That um, combination of online shopping, COVID shutdowns, resupplying things that were out of stock and the holidays together have all combined into what you know really is a crisis of shipping and a crisis of consumer products. And it's sending costs skyrocketing. The average shipping container has gone from somewhere right around $3,000 to around $24,000 on the spot market. Christina Clark says many of her suppliers have raised prices twice this year, and some are now tacking on a shipping surcharge, most of which she isn't passing on to her customers. Financially, how is this affecting you? (laughs) Um, Well, I just have a lot of debt. I have a a huge amount of debt and... uh, and hope, <laughs> hope that it will be covered. Her message to customers, start your holiday shopping now. This will not be over by Christmas. Claire Sebastian, CNN, New York. Lots of stuffed toys though there, I saw. Okay, and finally, on the first move, South Korea joins the space race with a test flight of the country's first domestically produced rocket. While liftoff seemed to go well, it did fail to deliver a dummy payload. Still, President Moon Jae-in called it an excellent accomplishment. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. As always, stay safe. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next, and I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 